in our continuing series on the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25 today. We've just finished looking at what is called the triumphal entry last week. And we turn to Jesus as he and his disciples alternate between Bethany and the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. So we begin with Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Father, we do come to you today. We pray that you would... Uh, aid our prayers and that you would aid us as we pray to you today, that you'd give us a heart of faith and that you drive doubt away, and that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bertrand Russell, the atheist and philosopher of the 20th century, wrote a work called Why I Am Not a Christian, and in it he has reference to our passage today. He says this, then there is the curious story of the fig tree, which always rather puzzled me. You remember what happened about the fig tree. And so our passage today on that day following on the day following when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Bertrand Russell goes on to say of this, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in matter of wisdom or in matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in these respects. And so is Jesus just being hangry? You know, he's got some uh, low blood sugar and actually he's not very smart because he doesn't realize this is the time. You shouldn't be able to find any figs there. 
So says Bertrand Russell. Well, uh, here was a response, not so much uh, just to Bertrand Russell, but to others who, in scholarship, ask questions about this case of the fig tree. This is F.F. Bruce in his book, um, The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? He says, the cursing of the fig tree has been a stumbling block to many. They feel that it is unlike Jesus, and so someone must must have misunderstood what actually happened or turned a spoken parable into an acted miracle or something like that. It appears, however, that a closer acquaintance with fig trees would have prevented such misunderstandings. The time of the fig is not yet, says Mark, for it was just before Passover, about six weeks before the fully formed fig appears. The fact that Mark adds these words shows that he knew what he was talking about. When the fig leaves appear about the end of March, they are accompanied by a crop of small knobs called taksh by the Arabs, a sort of forerunner of the real figs. These taksh are eaten by peasants and others. When hungry, they drop off before the real fig is formed. But if the leaves appear unaccompanied by taksh, they will be no figs that year. There will be no figs that year. So it was evident to our Lord when he turned aside to see if there were any of these taksh on the fig tree to assuage his hunger for the time being, that the absence of the taksh meant that there would be no figs when the time of figs came. For all its fair foliage, it was a fruitless and hopeless tree. Now, I decided to do a little bit of a deep dive on figs. Sound fascinating to some of you, I'm sure. And I did that because as I, as I began to, to research this, people, some, I, one person said, well, F.F. Bruce is just biased. He's a Christian scholar. So I looked into it, and some scholars talk about a, uh, a, a, uh, the fig tree after it leaves, uh, having these uh, figs from the last season, and others talk about it uh, coming as a precursor to the new season. The reality is there are hundreds of varieties of figs. Fascinating, right? And um, but here's something from a completely, you know, this is a, a, a website about horticulture and food and figs. Okay, this is from myperfectplants.com. One of the biggest pleasures of gardening is to is to grow figs. Fig trees can produce two crops per year depending on the variety. The second crop is called a breba crop. A breva crop develops on the old wood of common fig trees during spring after the fig leaves, fig leaves emerge. The branches of which bear the breva crop are from the previous year's main fig crop production, which develops in fall or late summer. The breva crop of different fig varieties have different flavors that are not always as sweet as the main crop's fruit. When it comes to the selection of a fig variety, be mindful of the fig cultivar, as some of the fig cultivars do not develop breva crop at all. But some cultivars that produce highly high quality and good tasting breva crops include. If you'd like that information, I can tell you later. Okay. So the most reasonable way of reading the passage is that, in fact, Jesus walking down the road sees the fig tree in leaf, and he thinks there's going to be that precursor crop. He goes up to it. Uh Uh-uh. It's not there. Okay. So Jesus is not stupid. He's not unwise. Well, how about, but maybe he just had low blood sugar. He was just angry. Unreal. What did the, what did the fig tree ever do to him? Right? Well, what we find here in our passage is that Jesus is using the fig tree 
as an object lesson. The prophets often used various things for object lessons. Here's just an example. This is Ezekiel. I could give you many of these. This is Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it and set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. This was a model of the city of Jerusalem that Ezekiel was to to build. And it was a city under siege. And this was a prophetic object lesson that God was going to bring siege to the city of Jerusalem. It was going to be destroyed. So what is it that Jesus is trying? What's his point here? Well, you're going to have to find out. You're going to have to wait. But so we're going to go on to the next, uh, the next image here, the next um, uh, account, which is the trip into Jerusalem. And we find here that there's an emphasis on the temple, the temple being a place of prayer, a place of prayer for all nations, not just ethnic Israel. So Mark chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, this particular area in the temple was called the court of Gentiles. It was the outer portion of the temple, not the temple proper. And this area was huge. It was uh, about 500 yards long and 325 yards wide. It had a colonnade all around it. Um, And uh, the Gentiles were allowed to come in that area. The the Gentiles that hadn't converted uh, wholly to Judaism but still were called God-fearers, they would come to the temple at various times, but they were not to proceed any further than the outer court of the Gentiles. And so in the outer court had been set up the money changers and those selling sacrifices. So the money changers were there because according to the Old Testament law, they had to pay uh, in the currency of the shekel. And the closest thing that they had to it, they used, this was a, a currency that had no image on the coin, which was very important to the Jews. And so they had, to, they had to exchange that currency. And they also had their pigeons specifically. Those were um, the sacrifices that people of lower income would make instead of uh, buying a lamb. So this is kind of the setup of what's going on here. And so what we have here is if you go back to the cursing of the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree and his response in the temple, his action is designed to teach. And so we call this the cleansing of the temple, right? It probably says that in your, uh, in your Bible as a header. But it wasn't really so much as a cleansing. It, it was a protest by Jesus. He was saying that the temple has become corrupt. He was teaching that both through his words and through his actions, Mark eleven seventeen, And he was teaching them, saying to them, 
Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. A house of prayer for all people. There's that emphasis on prayer. Now, why is it that there's an emphasis on prayer? Was this, this was obviously something that Jesus didn't make up. Was it just something that Isaiah made up? No, we go all the way back to the very beginning of the temple, Solomon's temple, when it was built by Solomon. And Solomon comes before the altar in the temple, and he prays a prayer of dedication. And I'm going to take a little time to unpack that prayer because we find a particular emphasis in his prayer. It's in 1 Kings 8, beginning with verse 27. This is Solomon praying. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place when you hear and forgive. And then I'm just going to list several verses after this as part of his prayer. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with your house. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin... Verse 38, whenever prayer, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward the house. Verse 44, if your people go out to battle against the enemy by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. And then here in heaven, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And I could go on. And so here's God's response. First Kings 9, 3. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. In my eyes, my heart will be there for all time. Got it? So this was a house of what? This was a house of prayer. And that was the emphasis of Solomon's prayer was God, we realize that you can't be contained in this temple, but we're praying that your name would be associated with this temple. And so when your people pray and they come to the temple, may you respond. And when people are out from a distance and they pray toward your temple, because that is where your name is located, you're, you're especially uh, located in your name at the temple, then hear their prayer. Jonah was inside the belly of the fish in the Mediterranean Sea, and he prayed, Jonah chapter 2, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, where? In your holy temple. 
The temple was also uh, a place for all peoples to pray, as we said, and the temple um, was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the second temple was built in 586 B.C., and later Herod expanded it, and it was in the process of being expanded in the time of Jesus Christ. The temple was a place of the sacrificial system where people would come for atonement to be made for their sins, again, so that they might have a relationship with God. In AD 66, that's when the temple was finally, Herod's temple was finally uh, completed. There were 255,000 lambs slaughtered for Passover. 255,000 lambs. And so when we go back to this image here in the temple where Jesus is going into the temple and there is the buying and the selling of animals that had to take place somewhere. And scholars debate as to what Jesus' problem was, but it probably should have been done in the precincts outside the temple. But something was going on in a way that was uh, defiling the temple. It was, uh, it, for one thing, uh, the cacophony of the bleeding of sheep and the animals was not, uh, was not enabling this to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles. Jesus was concerned about the Gentiles and their ability to come and pray. And it was made a den of robbers. At some, in some way, they were profiting from this in an illegitimate way. Jeremiah 7, 11, Jesus was quoting from that. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So what's going on here? Jesus' action in driving out those who bought and sold, who overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold the pigeons, it was an act of judgment. And it was an act of judgment, which was a preliminary of what was going to happen to the temple some 40 years later, A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed. We're going to cover this in a couple of weeks, but when you get to chapter 13, uh, we read this response between Jesus and his disciples. Chapter verse 1, and he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So there's going to be this destruction of the second temple was going to take place. It was foretold by Jesus. It was foretold in his preliminary demonstration of judgment on the temple which he prefigured in the cursing of the fig tree, right? So you've got the cursing of the fig tree, his time in the temple, and then the next statement about the cursing of the fig tree and the response to that. We find that in verse 19. And when the evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look the fig tree that you curse. And so again, you have these two scenes, and in between is this judgment on the temple. And in fact, this idea of the fig being related to judgment is found in the Old Testament. Joel 1.7, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. 
It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Micah 7, 1 says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul should desire. Jesus himself told this parable in Luke 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well, all well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So there was a cutting it down is a, um, is a judgment, an act of judgment. So no, Jesus wasn't simply angry. He wasn't simply having a low blood sugar moment. He was using the fig tree as an image, as an object lesson for the destruction of the temple that was going to come. His judgment on the temple. And it's interesting, if we look at the New Testament, there is no prophecy for a third temple. Right? You have the the first temple of Solomon... And you have its destruction prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament, and they also prophesied that there would be the rebuilding of the temple. We have in the New Testament the prophecy of the destruction of the temple, but there's no prophecy of a third temple. You see, Jesus Christ is the new and better temple. There is no need for another temple in terms of redemption. And the first reason that's true is because Jesus himself is the sacrifice for sins that takes the place of the sacrificial system for atonement in the temple. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, we read, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure And every priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This was at a time when the sacrificial system was still ongoing. And day after day and year after year and thousands and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices would take place. And they never could atone for sins. But Jesus... They were pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world when he was sacrificed. And so the temple was replaced by a better temple, Jesus Christ. But it's not only in the fact that he was the sacrifice. Jesus is the new and better way of access to God in prayer, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer, 1 Kings 8.29 again, it says, My name shall be there, and you may listen to the prayer, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers in this place. The name of God was associated with the temple. What about Jesus Christ? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, 
that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask in the Father, the Father in my name, that he may give to you. John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, Jesus is the new temple. We pray in Jesus' name not because it's some sort of incantation that we put at the end of our prayer, but because the presence of God and the name of God are associated with the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that we have access to God. Jesus said this in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And we get to the very end of the book of Revelation, and we find there that the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down. There's this, there's this dramatic figurative image of the new Jerusalem coming down. And so the city comes down, but there is no temple. Why is that? And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, Jesus is the new and better temple. And so in John chapter 14, which was all about accessing the Father through praying in the name of the Son, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we pray in the name of Jesus because God has placed the name of Jesus, has placed himself in the name of Jesus, in Jesus himself as the temple where we have access to God. So therefore, we have faith in Jesus. We have faith in Jesus that our sins might be forgiven, that sacrificial system done away with. He was the once and for all sacrifice. And so we rely on him. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 and following. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask and pray in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So first of all, we do pray for salvation. It's the greater need. But we also pray for physical healing. Like last week, we found out about the blind man who received sight. And so there is a prayer that is prayed in faith. Now, at the very beginning of our service, we, in our uh, confession of sin, or confession of faith, we talk, we use the word justification. Jesus is our mediator for justification. Justification is a declared righteousness. How is it that you and I can be righteous before God? Can we earn it? Can we deserve it? No. So theologians will use this terminology. Faith is the instrument of our justification. That is, we place our faith in the person of Jesus as our substitute. And that faith is the instrument by which we are declared right in God's sight. Because we're relying not on ourselves, but we're relying on Jesus, our substitute. So faith is not a work. Faith is a reliance on the work of another I've talked about years ago when I was right out of college, I traveled the country and, and one day I, was, uh, I needed to pay my rent uh, to, the, to the guy I was renting a room from. 
And uh, I was washing and waxing cars to earn some money. And that particular day, I just was not finding anybody. And I was really at, at the end of my rope. And I was, Lord, I, I need some money here. You know, please help me uh, to be able to, to pay for this. And um, near the end of the day, I looked down in the parking lot, and there was a $50 bill. And so I picked it up, and I took it to the man, and that's what I needed to pay for that particular rent. Now... I could have said, well, you know, did I bend down and pick it up and say, boy, that was hard work. You know, no, it would have been hard work if I had washed and waxed the car and then earned it and earned the money and paid for it. But simply bending down and picking it up was not work. And in the same way, that's how faith operates. We simply receive what God has given to us by faith. And that's true for salvation, and it's also true as we pray for God to work in our lives and work in this world. Now, I return to um, uh, the example of Bertrand Russell, uh, because faith is not faith in faith. It's faith in the person of Jesus. And when I was in college, uh, I went through a period of doubt for about six months, doubting my faith. And I was really wrestling with it and thinking it through. And I went to the school library and they had this book. Uh, if you go now on, on um, if you Google Bertrand Russell, why I'm not a Christian, you see all kinds of discussion on it. We didn't have Google back then. And I just went into the library. I pulled out a book, Bertrand Russell, I saw in the introduction, all these pastors have left their faith after reading this book. And so I thought, with fear and trepidation, this is going to put the nail in the coffin of my uh, faith in Christianity. And so I began to read, and I got to this section where he was talking about the fig tree. And as a 20-year-old college student, I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. You know, this, I am prone to doubt right now, but you've got to be kidding me. He's using this as an example of some great argument against Christianity. That's ridiculous. And I thought, that man has a lot of faith. That man should know better. That great intellect, which I'm sure he was a great intellect, should know that this is not a particularly difficult argument against Christianity in the Bible. And I said, he's got to really have some very strong faith presuppositions that are underlying his atheism. And I realized everybody's got faith. Everybody's got faith presuppositions when you get right down to it. And so the point is this. It's not that we have faith in faith. It's not faith in just any old God. It's not faith in your atheistic beliefs. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have faith in God in the name of Jesus where God's presence is located. Now... You come to him in faith and you ask. And so there is a caveat, right? Does God give you everything you ask for if you have faith? James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You desire and do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus himself in the garden prayed um, that the cup would pass from him. He did not want to experience the wrath of God. And so he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. So we understand there are times when God is not going to give us 
what we ask, even as we ask in faith. And there are times when this passage and passages like it are actually um, uh, not very attractive in their use uh, by Christians, where Christians will say, well, if you've got this illness in your life or if you've got this financial difficulty in your life, it's simply because you just don't have enough faith. And it may be true that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you do not doubt, but you may be going through difficulties because the Bible says that we will go through trials and difficulties and challenges and God will use that in our lives. And so we trust him and yet we come in faith. But lest we sort of do away with Jesus' comments, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, death by a, by a thousand qualifications, you know, let's back up and look and What he's saying is there are amazing things that can happen as we come to God in faith, asking him to do certain things. And so Jesus talks about being, you say, this mountain, what mountain? Probably the Mount of Olives. That's where they were. That's what they were looking at. Thrown into the sea. What sea? Probably the Dead Sea. They could see that from the Mount of Olives. If you have faith and do not doubt You know, Peter's saying, wow, Jesus, that's pretty impressive. Yesterday you cursed the fig tree, and today it's withered. Jesus says, you think cursing a fig tree is impressive? Using some hyperbole, he says, if you have faith, these things can happen. Much greater things than simply cursing a fig tree and watching it shrivel up. And so we come to him in faith and believing. We believe that he is working Uh, for our good and for his glory, and we pray in that way. So Jesus here again, this is talking about prayer. And it's talking about how our prayers can be hindered or helped. It can be helped by faith and hindered by doubt. But there's another way that our prayers can be hindered, and that is by the way we treat other people. Faith, in essence, is how we treat or relate to God, but the way we treat other people can hinder our prayers as well, as a general principle, we see that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where husbands are told that if they mistreat their wives, that it will hinder their prayers. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of, great, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There, uh, Peter's talking about women being physically uh, not as strong as men, and they can be taken advantage of. And he says, if you do that, your prayers are going to be hindered. Do not do that. Treat them as fellow heirs of life. And Jesus says it this way in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your fa- if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In 1989, Don Henley, former member of the Eagles, uh, some of you will remember him, has a song in which he talks about uh, living in such a graceless age. And if that was true in 1989, it's doubly true now. All you have to do is look at our media, uh, look at entertainment, look at television, look at movies. You know, how many portrayals of grace where somebody is wronged And the innocent party is wrong. And the innocent party and others show grace to the person that wrongs them. 
Not very often. Sometimes we see justice, but many times we see vengeance. Many times a person who is mistreated, somebody comes in and does what? There's blood and guts in response to the way that person has been mistreated. We live in a graceless age. Now, Don Henley was saying this in relationship to a broken relationship that he had with somebody. We live in a graceless age, and we need to show each other more grace. And so the lyrics of the song goes on, and he says, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter. It's about forgiveness, forgiveness, even if you don't love me anymore. We need forgiveness. Why? Be kind and compassionate to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4:32. We know what it means to be forgiven. Great sin, as we've sinned against God. And so as you have received God's mercy and grace, you can be gracious and forgive. And if we don't, it will impact our prayers. Not that we will lose our salvation or our relationship with God. It's by grace through faith. But it will impact our prayers. So come to Christ. Come to him, our new and better temple. Come to him in faith, trusting in his forgiveness, trusting in his willingness and power to answer your prayers, seeking to remove both doubt and lack of forgiveness that would stifle your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we come to you in faith through your son, Jesus Christ, that you hear our prayers. We believe, Father, help our unbelief. We pray that you would help us to believe and to trust in you eternally for eternal life. And Father, we pray that you would help us to trust in you in our daily lives, day in and day out, that we would not doubt but believe. And we pray, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, and through in our lives, remove the impediments uh, to our faith, that we might trust in you more and more. And Father, we pray that we would truly know the wonder of your forgiveness for us and that we would extend that forgiveness to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ is our living hope. And so we...